Today, we are going to remember Sharon Bald Eagle. Sharon was a 12-year-old girl born on May 27, 1972, to Helen and Taylor Bald Eagle. She was described as being bright, independent, and tough, full of life, a good student that liked school, and she loved to dance. I read she actually really liked to break dance. Her foster mom said she was a sweet little spirit. In 1984, she was living at an Indian boarding school for the school year named Brainerd Indian School in South Dakota, just outside of Hot Springs. From what I can find, from the time it was actually common for Indigenous children to go to these boarding schools instead of the schools on the reservations, apparently they were a little bit better education systems than the ones on the reservation. However, through research, they weren't all that great either. They had their own problems. They would live at these schools during the school year, and then at the summer and holidays, they would go home with their families. This was Sharon's first year at the school. You see, the last three years, she had been living with a foster family. This isn't the normal foster family we think of today. Although her parents were divorced, she was still in a good home. She had a really good loving relationship with her father and brother, Jay. However, Sharon was part of a program called the Indian Placement Program, which was through the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints Social Services. For those that don't know, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is also the Mormons. No, this program no longer exists. According to Wikipedia, it was a program for indigenous children to be paired with Mormon families during the school year so that they could attend, quote, majority white public schools rather than the Indian boarding schools or local schools on the reservations, end quote. Another site said that it was to, quote, provide Lamanite children with educational, spiritual, social, and cultural opportunities, end quote. Again, for good reasons, these programs no longer exist. Sharon's father had her in the program because being a single dad, he felt that there were some, quote, women things, end quote. He couldn't teach his daughter that she needed to learn as she was growing up. This can be taken many ways, so we're not even going to go down that road. Her dad, Taylor Bald Eagle, felt that he was doing what was best for her at the time, and that's what matters. He cared about her, and he wanted what he thought was best, no matter how any of us might feel about that today. Bottom line is, he loved her and still loves his daughter. As far as I can tell, as of the recording of this episode, he is still alive. This program actually seemed to be very good for Sharon. She enjoyed the program a lot. She also really liked the family she was with. She loved it so much that she convinced her little brother Jay to join the program with her. He was placed in a home about a mile and a half from Sharon's foster family, and her foster mom and his foster dad were siblings. Sharon and Jay had a really good close relationship. They had been constants for each other through their parents' divorce, so they had a really good bond. When Sharon was in the program alone, she was in Idaho and Jay was in South Dakota, so they really missed each other. Him being in the program was good for both of them. August of 1984 came around, and as I said, Sharon was going to a new school. You might ask why, if she loved the program so much, would she be going somewhere else? To be honest, sources don't really know. A couple of days before the bus was to pick up the kids from the area for this program, and there actually seemed to be several children in the area in this program, Sharon and her family had learned that she was dropped from the program, but Jay was not. This came as a shock to everyone, including the foster family. They were really looking forward to her return, and they had been talking to her, making plans up until just a few weeks before the date. Yes, I said weeks. Weeks may seem like a lot of time now. 
But back then, people weren't on the phone with each other all the time. The only thing that I can find was that she was let go because of her attitude, which no one seems to really understand what that actually means. The only thing that anyone could think of was when she first started the program. So we're talking, you know, a few years ago, she had some little issues with her foster siblings just making the adjustment. But the family said it wasn't a big deal at all. It was nothing different than any regular siblings arguing, fighting. Everyone moved on. No real big problem at all. The organization behind the program said the reason was confidential. I would think that it wouldn't be confidential from the people involved. But what do I know? Since she was dropped from this program, her dad, Taylor, had to find her a new school. They had been planning for her to go to Idaho, so she wasn't enrolled in anything near them. He was able to get in touch with the director of the boarding school, and they said that she would be welcome to go there, even though the school had already started, I think, a week or two before then. According to letters that Sharon sent home, it seemed like she was adjusting well to the new school. She was active in different activities. She'd even made the cheer squad. She wrote about going on hikes and swimming in the creeks and rivers in the area. She did mention that some of the older girls could be mean, which I know that stinks, but it's so common. Every school has those girls. Maybe this was one of the contributing factors as to why on September 18th, 1984, Sharon and another girl named Sandy Broken Leg, who was 15, decided to run away. It seems that on September 18th, Sharon was introduced to Sandy at a basketball game. She was with her school there for the game. Sharon had been asking around trying to get others to come with her, but no one would go. They were all like, hey, no, not cool. They introduced her to Sandy, who was a former student of the school, and she's like, yeah, I'll go. Sharon had an overnight bag on the bus. She went and got it and the girls slipped away. Judging from journals that they found later, Sharon was really missing her brother and her life back in Idaho and she was really determined to be there. I can totally understand this. I mean, she was a teenage girl ripped away from a life that she had built, family, friends. This was hard. Even kids today struggle with this kind of situation. So I really do feel for her. It was about 550 miles from the school to her foster parents' home in Idaho. From the time the girls left on September 18th to the next day, September 19th, they had gone 200 miles. I feel that's a really long way for two teenage girls to walk overnight. So I would think that they possibly picked up some rides along the way, maybe a ride from this town to the next and then so on, so on, because 200 miles seems like a really long way to go. We do know that they did go this far because they were picked up by a man named Royal Russell Long. He picked the girls up just outside of Casper, Wyoming. When he stopped to pick the girls up, he told them that they would get something to eat. They could go back to his place in Evansville, Wyoming, wash their clothes, get cleaned up, take a shower get some rest, and then that he would take them to a truck stop where they could catch a ride with a trucker to Idaho. Girls, one, don't hitchhike. Two, if anyone says, hey, come back to my house to take a shower, run, run away. Now, when they got back to Long's place, Sandy said that he tried to pay the girls to have sex with him. They refused and he pulled a gun. He then tied them up, beat them, raped Sandy, and then he fell asleep. Sandy said after he fell asleep, she was able to escape she ran to a neighbor's house where they called the police. While they were waiting on the police, they heard Long's truck start up and drive away. By the time the police arrived, Long was gone and Sharon was missing. 
Police immediately put out a bulletin for Long and his vehicle. A week later, the search was over and Long was located outside of Albuquerque, New Mexico. However, he was alone. He had placed a phone call to family member or friends asking them to send him money. It's unclear as to whether he just happened to be seen by FBI agents or if someone's phone was tapped. Either way, he was picked up by the FBI at a payphone in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Like I said, he was alone. Sharon was nowhere around. Long story of the incident was that he picked the girls up near Casper, Wyoming, offered them something to eat and the chance to get cleaned up and some rest, and then he would take them to a truck stop to catch a ride to Idaho. So his story starts out the same as Sandy's. But he says he offered the girls $25 for sex, then Sandy and him had consensual sex. After that, she told him they were actually 12 and 15. He had said they had told him they were 18 and 19. I'm sorry, there's no way in heck that a 12 and 15-year-old girl looked like an 18 and 19-year-old, especially in the 1980s. According to him, she tried blackmailing him for $200. This set him off, and there was a scuffle to which Sharon evidently got hit and got a bloody nose. He ended up tying up the girls to figure out what he was going to do next. When he fell asleep, Sandy escaped and called the police. Long told officers that he had taken Sharon to the truck stop just like he said he would. He put her in a truck and sent her with a trucker to Dallas. He said he never saw her again. He didn't do anything to her and that when he last saw her, Sharon was alive and well. This story, of course, could not be confirmed. There were no cameras in the early 1980s and apparently there were no witnesses that said that they saw Long with her at a truck stop and no one came forward saying that they had taken her to Dallas. When Long found out that he was a suspect in a kidnapping, he went to Amarillo, Texas to look for Sharon. Amarillo, Texas is 365 miles from Dallas. I could understand this story if maybe he went to Dallas, but not Amarillo. He said he went there to see if there were any witnesses that saw Sharon pass through the area with another trucker. He again told them she was alive the last time he saw her and he believed she was still alive. Long was charged with two counts of kidnapping for the purpose of rape, one count of rape, one count of attempted rape, one count of kidnapping for the purpose of taking a hostage, and one count of aggravated assault. That's a lot. However, Long took a plea deal, and under the terms and agreements of this, he would plead guilty to two counts of kidnapping for the purpose of taking indecent liberties with a minor, and one count of aggravated assault, for which he received two life sentences. He was not charged in Sharon's murder because there was no body or proof that she was even dead. If her body was to ever be found, he would be able to be charged. However, Long died in prison of natural causes in 1993. He went to his grave, never changing his story. He refused to talk to Sharon's dad, Taylor, when he went to prison to speak to him face to face. They said Taylor was waiting for him. Long came out, saw him, turned around and walked away. Taylor spent the early years after Sharon disappeared, looking everywhere for her, traveling all over the country, spending pretty much 24-7 nonstop looking for her until someone brought it to his attention that he still had other kids at home that were missing him and he was missing out on their lives. This was an eye-opener to him, so he kind of stepped back and let the police take the lead. When he speaks of her, he doesn't speak of her in ta past tense. He prays for her every day to return. He just lets the police take the lead. There were a few sightings of Sharon in the first few years that she went missing, and police and him looked into them. One seemed pretty promising, actually. 
It was a report that Sharon was in a car with a woman and she looked dazed and confused or disoriented, like she was drugged or maybe had amnesia and didn't know who she was or where she was. But this tip did turn out to be nothing. Taylor has stayed in contact with whoever was handling Sharon's case at the time. Of course, through the years, it's passed from detective to detective. They always keep in touch with him. They're always open with him about what's going on. So in 2019, when he started getting phone calls from family members and friends saying they were sorry for his loss, he was shaken to his core. He was dumbfounded. He called the detectives right away. It turned out that some human remains had been found in Wyoming near Sweetwater County. Misinformation started to spread like wildfire. The source gave information to a podcast that had followed Sharon's case, but the information they gave was misleading and incorrect. Their sources told them that the remains were found were a female of Native American descent. The age of them appeared to be around 12 to 15, and they did not appear to be super old, maybe 30 to 40 years. This led people to believe that this possibly could be Sharon. But it turns out that, yes, remains were found, but they are believed to be more prehistoric, not anything recent. That's the last thing that we have in regards to any updates to Sharon's case. The remains, from what I've read, are still being tested, but they firmly believe they are prehistoric. If they are that old, they're not going to be any of our missing people. Sharon is still missing, and no one seems to be set on whether she's alive or not. Either way, she's out there somewhere and her family still misses her dearly. If she's out there, I hope she's safe and well. Maybe someday she'll reach out to her family. If not, may she rest in peace. If you have any information on Sharon Bald Eagle, you can contact the Fall River County Sheriff's Office at 605-754-4444. That's all for today's case. If you don't already, please follow, like, or subscribe depending on where you listen please leave a five-star review as it really does help the podcast grow. If you have a case that you'd like us to cover, please email us at beforeamberpod at gmail.com. You can also follow the show across all social media platforms at beforeamberpod. You can visit our website at beforeamber.com. We'll be back in two weeks to remember someone else. Until next time, thanks for listening. Later. All sources for the show are listed in our show notes, but some of those sources include newspapers.com, the Rapid City Journal, the Casper Star Tribune, Wikipedia.com, the Doe Network, the National Center of Missing and Exploited Children, JusticeForNativePeople.com, and the CharlieProject.org. Thanks again. Later.